paid good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Matthew Asprey Gear. Oh, Mike, good to be here. Also joining us in the booth is Mr. AJ Black. Hi, nice to be back, Mike. November and Shocktober meet on an episode where we discuss Roman Polanski's 1999 film, The Ninth Gate. Based on the book, The Club de Ma, the film tells the tale of Dean Corso, played by Johnny Depp, a book detective who gets put on the case by the diabolical Boris Balkan, played by Frank Langella. He's to compare three volumes of the same book, a tome which holds the secret of summoning the Dark Lord himself. We will be spoiling the film as we go along, so if you don't want anything ruined, turn off the podcast and come back after you've seen The Ninth Gate. We will still be here. So, Matthew, when was the first time you saw the film, and what did you think? Well, I saw this when it came out in the cinema in 1999 in Australia, where I grew up, and I was excited, I remember, because I think I was exploring the Polanski filmography and having a new Polanski film in the cinema was really exciting. And I think my initial response was kind of mixed. I mean, it's one of these films that I found entertaining, but you know, if you think too hard on it, I'm not quite sure how how much it holds together. But the other thing that I think I, I associate with my first viewing was the fact that it came up, came out around the same time as Eyes Wide Shut. And, you know, I kind of get these two not mixed up in my mind, but they do seem to connect. They both have this kind of bogus New York setting and uh, at least in the beginning of The Ninth Gate. Yeah, it's kind of a bit mixed up in my head with the eyes wide shut experience. But I tell you, yeah, generally it was 
wasn't a, an overwhelming experience at the cinema, but uh, entertaining. And, you know, it certainly has the Polanski touch that it manages to create a fair bit of suspense considering the hokiness of the, of the setup. And AJ, how about yourself? It was close to the time it came out, actually. I th- I'm pretty sure it was, did I see it in the cinema? It wasn't late 90s, maybe early noughties. And I fell in love with this film really quickly. And to be fair, I'm still not a um, completely au fait with everything Polanski has done, but I didn't re- I hadn't really watched a lot of his stuff by then. So I was, I was only like 20. So at that point, I didn't really know a great deal about his work. But the film itself just really entranced me to be honest. And I just, I've, you know, I've always liked stories about the devil, <laughs> actually. I've always, as kind of movies. And this had that real balance of class menace comedy, actually, about it, that really appealed to me in a strange way. So I've been a real fan of this for over 20 years. And it's an underreported movie for me. So it's really nice to be able to chat about it because not enough people have either seen it or really remember it as fondly as me, it feels like. I saw this one, I guess it must have been DVD early 2000s, and didn't really pick up on the Eyes Wide Shut connection, though I definitely can appreciate that now, re-watching it. I was picking up more on this whole weird end of the millennium, we're going to reintroduce Satan back into the world kind of thing. There was Stigmata, there was End of Days, it feels like there were a few other apocalyptic visions of the world. I mean, of course, strange days, but they didn't necessarily have Satan inside of that. But we were really paranoid about the end of the 1900s going into the 2000s, and this one played right into that. I can't say that I enjoyed this movie that much then, but it definitely stuck with me, so much so that here we are all these years later talking about it. Yeah, I don't think I've seen it since. And, you know, what struck me was, oh, i I actually remember this movie really well, uh, which doesn't always happen. So was this around the time as well of The Devil's Advocate, that Al Pacino movie? Oh, boy, yeah. I want to say that was 97, but I'm not sure. Sounds about right, yeah. Yeah, we were really kind of obsessed, though. Satan himself doesn't really show up unless you consider the girl to be Satan, or is she Satan's emissary? I'm not sure. There's a lot of question marks left uh, at the end of this movie. I always wondered if this movie was a play on the Seven Gates of Hell, the male chastity device. I wondered if that was a joke, because Polanski, he cannot avoid dark humor. There are so many parts of this movie that are just so friggin' funny, though I'm not I'm not sure if we're supposed to laugh or not, but I think we are. Things like Johnny Depp with his pants around his ankles in a fight with Lena Olin, or... Oh, gosh, the the whole Madame Telfer thing, the way that she dies. I mean, there's some real funny shit going on in this movie. I think also the fact that these antiquarian book dealers are endlessly smoking around these priceless books is is a bit of a joke because I mean smoking, drinking they don't they don't they don't mix. yeah, even the uh, the twin brothers, uh, the the elderly twin brother book dealers, you know, the second that he hands over this book, they're just spilling cigarette ash all over it. So I think that's kind of a running joke. I don't think we're supposed to take any of this too seriously. 
I mentioned at the beginning that this is kind of a November and Shocktober mix-up here, and we're right on the end of talking about films noir. And I would say that this would count as a neo-noir. It definitely fits into a lot of the tropes, and it also has... I mean, they make open references to double indemnity in here. And we've got this whole detective character. They call him a book detective, Gregory Corso. And I almost screwed up and called him Bob Corso. And then I almost screwed up and called him Lucas Corso because he's gone through a lot of name changes over <laughs> from book to screenplay to final movie. And I'm wondering if, if Corso, Dean Corso, it feels to me like it's a, a beatnik reference between Dean Moriarty and the writer, Greg, the beat Gregory writer. Corso. Yeah, Gregory Corso. That might be, I mean, that could be Johnny Depp's influence because I know he kind of worshipped all those beat writers. But you say as well that Corso is in the uh, is in the novel. But he is Lucas Corso there. The novel's called The Club Dumas. And the novel really has two competing storylines going on. And our main character of Lucas Corso mixes those two things up. And he really makes us think as the reader that both of the mysteries, both of the storylines are connected. And then the writer pulls the rug out from under you at the end and says, no, no, these are two completely different things that you're looking at. You are making the same mistake that Corso is if you think that these two things are related. So this, this whole story about this, chapter from the three musketeers that's going on and this whole group that kind of worships dumont and every single person in this club the club dumont are associated with one chapter of the book so i think there's i don't know 69 members 49 members however many chapters that book has basically the liana telfer character as well as her henchmen, who I refer to in the notes as Mustache, they basically are playing characters from The Three Musketeers, and they're very much involved in that storyline versus the whole satanic storyline. So it's really kind of a confusing book. Plus, it gets confusing, too, because it's third person for, I would say, two-thirds of the book, but at the beginning and towards the end, we flip to first person, and I think it's Boris Belkin that is narrating those scenes, which makes it very odd when we suddenly are pulled away from our main character and thrust into the POV of a side character. I've never read any of uh, Arturo Perez Reverte's books, so uh, I'm curious to see how different this movie seems to be, because obviously there's no Dumas context at all uh, in the, the Ninth Gate. Well, not only is there Dumas, but there's also Doyle. When he meets the girl, she refers to herself as Irene Adler. She has a quote-unquote a name in the book, but obviously it's a made-up name. Obviously, it's a reference to the character from the Sherlock Holmes stories. I mean, but in this one, yeah, there's none of that. I mean, we are really paring down the narrative to try to make it much more of a straightforward story of intrigue and mystery Though, I would say there's multiple murders in this movie, and I'm still not exactly sure who's committing those murders. If it's Leanne Telfer, if it's Boris Belkin. I mean, the Belkin stuff seems pretty handed to us, especially when we meet him at the beginning, and then we he goes away for 90% of the film. 
though he's always there as a voice on the phone. And the first time we hear him on the phone, we can hear it's obvious that he's at an airport. So it's like, okay, he is definitely following you, Dean Corso. But I don't know if you're just not smart enough to realize that. I mean, Dean thinks that the girl is an emissary of Balkans, but she is completely not. So he's not that great of a detective most of the time. Yeah, he's uh, a book detective. I mean, you'd, <laughs> it's a strange kind of designation. I don't think the usual kind of beat he uh, works is is that dangerous. I mean, I like the opening scene where he rips off this family uh, and, and and buys up their Don Quixote for dirt cheap prices. Uh, he's kind of like not exactly a hard boiled detective type of character. I think he's you know he's kind of just a, a jerk, really. It seems in this world, and I mean, apart from his his apparent expertise in in rare books, it's kind of curious why Balkan hires him in the first place. Because what exactly, what exactly does he do that Balkan couldn't do himself or <laughs> use somebody more capable to do? Exactly, he doesn't even discover the whole thing about the drawings in the Ninth Gate book. That's actually the Sinitsa brothers point out to him, oh, notice how these drawings are different. That should have been pretty obvious for him because his whole thing is let's examine these books and find out all of the differences. But they're the ones that are just like, oh, look at, see, it's a different author. It's AT over here and it's LCF over here. It's like, Okay, maybe you should have noticed that one. I mean, it is kind of spot the difference, you know, those things from like the highlights magazines where it's like two pictures next to each other. And now you have to find out all those differences. They're very slight on these drawings, but in the book, originally it was supposed to be the differences were the way that the spell or whatever is cast in order to summon Satan is things like left hand versus right hand. So I guess the word, you know, right in Latin or whatever would be the thing that would be part of that spell. And so each drawing contained the differences and each drawing would give you a different term that you would then have to figure out how that spell is cast. It seemed very complicated to me. And I still don't know exactly how Boris Balkan is using these drawings as a gateway to summon Satan, but Whatever. Again, to your point, it doesn't really hold together a lot of times because there's a lot of questions that we're left with here. And we're not even talking about the ending. Yeah, well, that that's what I was going to bring up because I'm completely puzzled, firstly, of what the motivation is for the Sinitsa brothers to have replaced one of the uh, the illustrations in that edition with a fake illustration. And secondly, why then they would hide this swiped illustration, the original on top of a bookshelf, and three seconds after Johnny Depp walks into this bookstore, it falls off the top of the shelf and lands at his feet. I mean, it's all kind of, what is all this about? It seems like very much a, we need to wrap this movie up really quickly, and what can we do? But do you have any insights there? No, though the end of the movie is definitely different than the end of the screenplay, where basically he finds that picture, and then he just walks out. So there is none of that last shot of him visiting Balkan's castle and disappearing into the Ninth Gate, going to hell, I guess, is what he's doing. And I know that ending caused a lot of people a lot of problems. I was reading a lot of reviews before we recorded this, 
And people would be like, oh, yeah, it's really good until the last shot. The last shot just ruins this whole film. And I'm like, I don't know if I would say it ruins the whole film, but it is an interesting way to end it. And they definitely changed some things in the commentary. Polanski talked a little bit about the conflict between Belkin and Corso near the end of the film. So the whole thing of Corso falling through the floor and listening to Belkin, that is kind of a rewrite of him being this really captive audience. And then the whole question of, does he motivate Belkin to set himself on fire or not? I think it was more like that in the book and then becomes more like that again in the movie, but it wasn't there in the screenplay. So he basically is like putting his hands in the fire and talks about how he's completely invincible. And then he pretty much just, catches on fire and dies that way. And there's also the whole question of does Corso kill him or does Corso leave him the gun so that Balkan can kill himself? And it's much more, he leaves him the gun so he can kill himself in the screenplay. You hear this, the shot outside. It's not Corso actually picking up the gun and putting Balkan out of his misery. Yeah. The movie makes that, decision to because we see uh, Corso kill two people in the course of the film, which seems to be part of the reason why the girl character is accompanying him along the way. This she's really impressed that he has it in him to kill to kill someone. Yeah, she seems turned on when he kills that mustache guy. Yeah. But at the same time, Corso is a character, at least as he's introduced doesn't seem to be a particularly conflicted person. There's nothing really to prepare us for for a guy who's on the edge of violence or anything. I mean, he's sort of just, you know, your mild-mannered jerk book dealer who winds up kind of just initially sort of just sailing through this investigation, never too disturbed by anything that's happening to him. But then suddenly a point of interest is his capacity for evil, I guess. And... It doesn't feel like the ground's been properly prepared for that at all. That scene at the beginning with him talking to this couple about their father's book collection and the poor father is there completely unable to talk, staring at the window, him gripping the blanket when he hears how cheap this copy of Don Quixote is going for. But yeah, that's not in the book either. That is all just added in for us to be introduced to his character and yeah, to find out what a shit heel he is. But he's your kind of run of the mill, untrustworthy, creepy guy, but he's not somebody who we, we consider to be a potential killer, I don't think. And, and maybe that's also to do with the way Johnny Depp performs the character throughout. I mean, he seems kind of physically unthreatening throughout the whole film. So it's a curious decision to kind of uh, to put the uh, emphasis on his capacity for violence. One thing I picked up too is that there's, so there's the man who's had a stroke and then we meet Alan Garfield in a very brief appearance. And I have a feeling this must've been towards the end of his life. I know he had just had a stroke. And so Garfield is speaking with part of his mouth being paralyzed and reading Corso the Riot Act a little bit because he's just pretty much fucked him on this whole business deal. And then you get Baroness Kessler later on, who's missing a hand. So it's like there's so many physical defects going on in this film. It's really interesting that it's like everybody who comes in contact with Corso has something going on with them. Yeah, it 
does feel strange, doesn't it? It's it's it seems to be a a recurring theme in this film that everyone's a little bit offbeat. I suppose there is there is something a little bit uncanny about everybody. There's something. Once I hyper real is not the right word, but a little bit off base. And he is going through because obviously it's so singularly focused on him as a character. He's he's meeting all of these people in this very detective style fashion throughout the film, and everyone they seem to get stranger in their own way. <laughs> Further he goes down into this this rabbit hole. Alan Garfield was hilarious, though I thought like he's only in it for like a minute, but he just makes me laugh. <laughs> the way he delivers the lines is fantastic. I almost wonder if that's Polanski trying to make this material just somehow more interesting, because it would be easy to see how this could be directed in a very much more conventional way but he tries to introduce these little oddities i think just to keep things interesting and it does contribute to that tone of the slightly oddball comic tone that you were talking about mike well there's also a lot of feeling of dream in this movie there's this like you said aj hyper reality i mean there's this whole need for i mean new york is fake you know, the, the shot, some of the establishing shots are real, but all the stuff through the windows, all of that is completely fake. Obviously, Polanski can't come over here and shoot anything, but there's also so many times that we're using green screen. I mean, all of the stuff inside of cars, when we see backgrounds in cars, or there's a, I kind of find it hilarious. There's a shot of Corso on the back of Senye's motorcycle and everything is so fakey looking and the reflections on her helmet and everything look completely fake. I mean, it just, it adds this level of, of hyper reality that you're talking about. And then it kind of fits too, because our main character, he falls asleep a lot in this movie, either he's knocked out, which is very, you know, Philip Marlowe, or he just goes to sleep. I and mean, we, we see him sleeping in his own bed a few times, but he falls asleep right there at the very first lecture of Boris Balkan, which I found hilarious that there's a major misspelling on the sign outside the door that it's literature, L-I-T-T-E-R. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't notice that. That's good. <laughs> but yeah, he's always falling asleep and it's like, okay, what is real? What's not? I was really reminded a lot of Angel Heart, which I just talked about on the Wake Up Heavy podcast, where it's nobody else is doing these murders. It's actually spoilers for Angel Heart. It's actually Mickey Rourke is killing all these people. And I kept thinking, is it Johnny Depp who's actually murdering everybody? And he just doesn't remember it because he keeps either being conked in the head or not remembering, especially when he is at the Baroness's uh, Kessler's place and he gets knocked on the head allegedly, but we basically just see a POV shot of him falling onto the book. And then when he wakes up, there's the Baroness has been strangled and her electric chair is just knocking against the wall. And that was the moment of high comedy I was talking about before, where once he kind of frees her, turns her around the way her wheelchair just shoots on down and opens up the door. And then she immolates right there. A lot of people being set on fire in this movie as well. With some pretty uh, dodgy CGI fire effects uh, yeah. from outside uh, immediately after that. I was going to, I remember when I first saw it, the green screen stuff stuck out at the cinema as, as just, it made the film feel kind of cheap. It does feel kind of a bit cheap. And you, you expect, you know, with Polanski, you'd expect something a little bit more 
in the production, in a way of production value. But this, this does come across as a little bit sort of scrappy in its, in the way it's put together. Do you think when he's talking, Polanski, because he talks about how he almost wanted that feeling of slight hyper reality to the, the sets, you know, to the New York, you know, even though they got a lot of real books in there, I think to actually give a level of authenticity. Do you guys think that that's his way of trying to make do with the fact he can't actually go to the States to film, you know, or is, is it an aesthetic choice? Really? Would, would he have actually gone to New York and done that properly if he was able to easier? Some of that stuff works and some of it doesn't like the Balkans building, which I'm sorry, but the facade of that and the way that the Balkan name is spelled out on the gold background. So Trump tower to yeah, me. Yeah. That building was only about half as tall as it is. And they use CGI to build out the other half to make it even taller. That stuff works for me. But then other times it's like, all right, why are you doing this? Like the, the motorcycle stuff or the car stuff. Now, when it comes to the car stuff, I was really reminded a lot of uh, Hitchcock and just how he would always use rear projection. And it always, it looked terrible. Look, frankly, it looked horrible. Like the, the big reveal of all of the things that are going on when they're at the airport and we've got the really fakey looking background that Jimmy Stewart and I can't remember if that's J. Carol Nash or whoever it is, are they're walking forward and we've got them just with that horrific rear projection. Mike is speaking of North by Northwest and means Cary Grant, not Jimmy Stewart. But I think it adds that hyper real feel to it. It makes us question what is real and what isn't. Or I don't know if it's if it's very clever or if it's just I can't shoot what the way that I want to shoot. But even when it comes to the motorcycle stuff, it's like you just put the motorcycle on a trolley and you pull it that way. You know, you don't have to do all this, the the fake background replacement of all that stuff. Maybe he's going for an old fashioned sensibility in that sense. You know, I saw someone trying. I saw someone comparing it a little bit to Vertigo in some of the the mechanisms it has. Obviously, it's not as skilled as that movie but maybe there's something he's trying to craft in this that it is that old-fashioned gumshoe tale and the stylistics fit that maybe a little bit but he's already uh, made a, a great gumshoe tale that has nothing like that approach in chinatown so i don't know i mean if you look at what kubrick did to kind of fake new york in eyes wide shut the same year i mean kubrick obviously was much more meticulous Kubrick had no reason that he couldn't go back to shoot in New York, except that he didn't like to get on a plane, I think, but or didn't like to leave Boreham Wood. But uh, the New York of Eyes Wide Shut has that dreamlike kind of quality, too, just because it's not quite, it doesn't feel really like New York, but it still has a sense of place. The New York in The Ninth Gate, it just, just does seem kind of very like a theatrical backdrop more than anything else, I think, in most of the scenes. Maybe what Polanski needed for the end of the film was a kind of Mulholland Drive ending, which just made everybody walk out of the cinema saying, what the hell was all that? Like what, everything we thought had happened. So maybe that kind of dreamlike ending would have actually helped this film. You start to get there with the Sinitza brothers, with him, Corso, coming down that alleyway and that little boy who runs out and says, see, see, mama. And then when he comes back to that alleyway, you hear the exact same audio of the Sissi Mama. You don't see the kid, but you hear it. And it's like, did we just time loop? Is this what's going on? Because when he gets back there, 
oh, the Sinise brothers have been dead for years, sir. Though the two people that are clearing out the shop are the same person. And it's interesting that it's one person playing four roles with the one guy who's doubled up as the twins. Though I think Polanski's doing the voice of one of the twins. And then you come back to that same shop where it's all being taken apart and you've got the two workmen there and that's just the same guy again. But this time they're much more different. One's wearing overalls. The other one isn't wearing overalls. So they're not dressed almost exactly the same. They're not finishing each other's sentences or anything, but yeah, this, there is that time loop. And I kind of wish that they would have ended with him walking back down that alleyway and then fade out the end, because I think that would have left us with a little bit more of like, oh, what just happened there? Rather than when they show him walking into that last gate and the the screen being taken over by the sunrise, that's when you go, what just happened there? So it's a little bit of a different reaction. Would have been interesting to go more down that road, really, because that whole sequence where he goes back to that bookshop feels strange it feels it's almost like in a way it feels like they were never really there those guys and it's really odd and then obviously he gets that last paper fly off it's very magical isn't it it's very dreamlike it is very much like it's yeah it would have been really interesting to go down that road because because obviously there's ambiguity about the final shot which i don't know if we'll come to that later but like yeah it's it's strange It's, it's a shame there wasn't even more narrative ambiguity in that sense i suppose i find it interesting that the book, The Nine Gates to the Kingdom of Darkness or Kingdom of Shadows, sorry, I find it interesting that the book is so much about the images more than the words. Like, the images have captions to them, and they tell a little story there. But Leanna Talfer, the Lena Olin character, she is so much about reading the words, but Balkan is all about the pictures, To me, I would think it would be the opposite. Like, you know, when you're reading a book, you're just like, okay, you know, pretty illustration or whatever. But for me, the whole book is about those pictures. It's like scrap everything else. Like, I don't even think Corso reads one word of the book. He's just looking at the pictures. In the book, the El Club Dumas, he does look at the words and they're exactly the same down to every single comma. So he is really studying all of that stuff too. And it's really only the images that are the different things. So to me, Leanna is really looking at the wrong stuff. She should be looking at those images and instead she's just worried about the words. I suppose it's proving that she's a dilettante in the sense that she doesn't really understand what this is. And that she's she's approaching it from the idea that you can you can put on a robe, you can chant some words, and that will be this incantation of power. Whereas the film is at pains to point out that it's it's the imagery, it's the symbolism within that imagery that's the power, and understanding what that means and how they interconnect, as opposed to it. I, I did love the bit where Frank Langella comes in and he's he's brilliant throughout this film, and then he comes in his mumbo jumbo, mumbo jumbo. That was so funny. <laughs> mumbo jumbo it's great because it really highlights because on the one hand the film sort of tries to trick you into thinking that liana telf is the the big bad and she's the villain and she's the devil woman and all this kind of thing but she's not at all she's she's just quite clueless throughout the whole film and a bit crazy so yeah it's almost like a wrong words are wrong footing you i guess in that way i wonder if it's polanski telling us don't pay attention to the words but pay attention to the images yeah, it could be. Definitely more cinematic to, to make it about the uh, illustrations. 
all those insert shots of those images, those images are fantastic. I could just look at those forever. And I'm glad there are some people out there online that have actually collected all those images. They've collected all the text and they're like, here's how you can make your own nine gates. And here's how you you do bookbinding and stuff. I'm like, okay, you're taking a little far, but it is a beautiful prop. I suppose the, the books were created by Dean Tavalouris, the production designer. The production design in this, I mean, the castle stuff that they have, some of the rooms that they're in, I mean, just fascinating stuff. It's, I know so much of it is all just smoke and mirrors, but I would love to be in those rooms and look at all those books and just the power of having all those books in these locations. And I know so many mm-hmm. of them are, you know, complete facades. I'm sure just like all the books behind you right now, you just pull them back. It's just cardboard, right? But <laughs> <laughs> get, get, I get all my books at the furniture store where they have all those great fake books, you know? I love being in places with all of those books. And it just seems like, oh, yeah, I could spend all day here looking at things. Like when he gets the opportunity either at at Fargus's place or at Baroness Kessler's place to just sit down and look at the books. I'm just like, man, that that's so what I like to do, just getting into that kind of research. No, they don't. Yeah, 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 yeah. The one that was apparently real was the one that James Russo, the Don Quixote, that was apparently a real book wasn't it apparently which is amazing that they were lent an actual like 16th century old book (laughs) if i was james russo i'd have been going oh my god i don't want to touch this (laughs) i don't know why you would use the real book it doesn't make any sense at all i don't even know if they cracked the cover it's a real risk yeah exactly i was very happy to see james russo show up in this and that he's not kind of chewing the scenery because he can get a little intense at times i mean mikey from beverly hills cop but you know he he does a great job in here and i love his death and that he's posed in that same symbol as one of the the images though it's funny because we just talked about nightmare alley on this show and that image of the hanging man is so prominent inside of nightmare alley like that becomes stanton carlisle's card his tarot card is the hanged man and if you look at the criterion version of nightmare alley it's that image of tyrone power hanging upside down so having that repeat again just a few weeks after talking about nightmare alley i was like oh this is kind of nice you're in that space (laughs) getting the same things over and over again Everything's a tarot card. I mean, and those images from the book look very, very tarot to me. Some of those things that are happening in there and the whole like pointing the way and, you know, don't talk about things. Silence is golden. And when you watch the movie, so much of the stuff that's happening in those images are happening in the movie, which I really appreciate. Even when it comes to the angel who's looking down and shooting an arrow down, if you look at that picture really close it so much looks like one of the sinitsa brothers he's even got a mustache which is wild and then that the scaffold falls down from on high and there's a lot of high up low down kind of things in this movie as well we've got so many people going upstairs and coming downstairs in this movie it's wild and then that one of our characters dies due to a fall down the steps i'm like wow i think we're you're really trying to tell us something here roman i'm not exactly sure what it is though Descent, ascent, <laughs> one of the two. Yeah, 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 probably both. Yeah, again, very Hitchcockian. And as far as like, I was surprised there were no spiral staircase because we know that Hitchcock loved spiral staircases. But even when you think about Psycho and the death of the Martin Balsam character falling down the stairs, I mean, there's there's a lot of stair imagery in, in your Hitchcocks as well. And there's also going back to what you're talking about, Matthew, with the Chinatown. I mean, I think there's at least one good 
bad eye reference that happens in this movie as well. And then all of the stuff with the glasses. I mean, we obviously the, the, the pond with the broken glass. I can't remember Mulvey's, his first name, but his, uh, glasses are broken and found in the pond. And then we've got Corso stepping on his own glasses. Corso, again, we we're talking about whether he's a good detective or not. He keeps missing that the girl can fly. And again, there's a lot of her climbing up things. And there's a few times where it's just like, well, she could climb this very easily, but now she has to drag Corso along with like she climbs up the Fargus place and then she climbs up Telfer's place later on. So yeah, she's doing a lot of that. But yeah, she flies down these stairs. She flies off of a balcony and Corso both times is looking the other way. He just feels like he's missing it. It is kind of like Jake gets. I mean, eventually gets, gets it, but for a long time, Gitz is completely clueless about everything and in living under the wrong impression. He's wrong about who the right Mrs. Mulvey is. He's or Mulray. Sorry. Thinking of Lauren Mulvey, the right Mrs. Mulray is he's, he's missing the whole thing with the sister slash daughter. I mean, it really takes a lot for him to get it. So I would say that Corso is very much the same. There is a lot about him being oblivious in some way, you know, to a lot of the the supernatural kind of stuff around him or not being interested in it. I wonder if he kind of mirrors Polanski in the sense that Polanski doesn't really believe in any of this. Like he's, he's gone on record as saying that he thinks it's all rubbish. He thinks it's all mumbo jumbo, you know, but he's fascinated by it and he likes the showmanship of this kind of ridiculous over the top gothic kind of devil sensibility which is very different here than it would have been in rosemary's baby say but like so it could be that corso is a little bit like that he's only really interested in his as he says you know i believe in my percentage he's only interested in that side of things so he's missing all of the other all of the other kind of stuff but then it's literalized with his broken glasses and not seeing things quite clearly and 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 these elements and then like you say, missing the the literal flying girl who is a bit of a chameleon in that she adapts to fit him. You know, she adapts. That was another thing I think Polanski said was that she would, she dressed like a, a, you know, a a homeless girl almost because Corsho is shabby. And had she been doing this and going to Balkan, she would have dressed a lot more with, with wealth. You know, she would have had all that. So it's that kind of thing that equally, maybe she doesn't want him to see. Maybe, you know, she's, disguise it's it's hard to say but he's pretty open i mean when she flies down those stairs in uh, paris i think <laughs> it's a really uncanny moment in the movie isn't it because the movie isn't constantly supernatural all the way through a lot of it's quite oh he's going to this bookshop he's going to this person it's quite slow and, and measured and then suddenly she flies down the stairs down the staircase and you're like okay <laughs> what film are we are we in there's very little that's really supernatural in this film until in these little glimpses, it's almost plausible none of this supernatural stuff even exists. It's just in the minds of the people who believe in these books and what their power is. But uh, then you get, yeah, the very brief glimpses of her flying. You go, okay, she's either very elegant at uh, jumping down a staircase or there's something magical happening. Yeah, the way that she keeps showing up at places... I love that there's so many good reflections in this movie as well. Like when she's on the train and we see her face in the glass and then we have half of her face kind of in darkness as the train is passing things. And then we get Corso later on at the cafe where he's waiting for the mustache guy to leave. And we get that nice reflection of him in the glass as well. And I found that interesting that Polanski was saying that that 
cafe just doesn't even exist. That it was just a couple walls and a couple tables that they set up that they didn't even have a real cafe that they shot in. I think he said that they shot in some hotel for the hotel lobby scenes, but that was about it. You wouldn't know, I don't think. No. It's really well, really well staged. There was a theme of Nazism that was going through both the book and the screenplay as well. The Gruber character at the hotel, he is allegedly an ex-Nazi and that he's very officious and Corso knows that he's an ex-Nazi and kind of keeps his secret. And then in the screenplay, they added a new thing with a Baroness Kessler where when she won't give him what he wants, he doesn't just come back in and apologize. And he, he ends up giving her something. And it's the photocopies from the book. And he explains, you know, hey, these images are different. When he comes back in the screenplay, he gives her photos of her with, like, Heinrich Himmler. So she used to hang out with Nazis, and that's the blackmail that he uses to get in there, as opposed to appealing to her intellectual curiosity, which I found kind of interesting. And I think it's more genuine that he's appealing to her intellectual curiosity because she's so fascinated by the subject. But I'm surprised she didn't just ask for the photocopies herself and then her do the work because, or like her hanging over his shoulder the entire time, because she's so fascinated with all of this stuff. Having said that she saw the devil when she was 15 and fell in love. It's like, I would be right there like, well, what do you see next? What's going on with this? And I'd be very into it instead of just kind of hanging around the side, waiting to be murdered. Kind of what she is, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah. She's a great character though. She is, I think. And she gives a lot of great exposition. Yeah, yeah, she does. Yeah, but there's that. Th- there is that level of, you know, she's she's in the middle in a way. She, she's not against him. She's not for him. And I, I mean, it's Barbara Jeffords' performance. I think makes it. You know, I know she was a late replacement for a another actress who had pneumonia, I believe, an actual German actress, and she was flown in and had to do like re- learn that all of that stuff within like three days. And she does an amazing job, I think. But it's interesting, I suppose, how he does have that. Uh, there is that tether to Nazism, given. Polanski's own relationship with that when he's a child and how his films seem obviously I know he does the pianist soon after this so he really faces a lot of that but it feels like he's he's he wants to be he wants to emphasize the showman aspects more than get into this nitty-gritty stuff and in interviews he always seems very reticent to talk in depth about it because I think it's always been an open wound for him I think it's interesting how that's that's lurking underneath as a as a means of of course so the unscrupulous thoroughly unscrupulous Corso who can him what he wants <laughs> you know it's a terrible thing to do well Corso himself you mentioned that he is very driven by money that opening scene of him getting the books I mean he's going to turn around and resell those and make a lot of money he is constantly saying hey I don't want to do this anymore to Balkan and Balkan's like add another zero to your salary you know and that calms him down when he confronts Belkin at the end, he's just like, where's my money? You know, he's so into the money. And then when Belkin starts saying things like, well, you're fascinated just like me. And I'm like, I don't know if I buy that. I don't know if Corso is fascinated by this stuff. And he's definitely not fascinated as much as Belkin is. But I think that's why the end of this movie feels wrong to me. Because I, even though Corso is on this journey. He is going through every single one of these nine pictures from the Nine Gates book, and he makes it to that ninth gate and enters into that ninth gate. It doesn't feel like 
even though he was on the journey, that he wanted to be on the journey. It feels like he's much more the reluctant knight in this rather than somebody who's going on a quest. And it just feels like his quest, more than anything, is to make some money. And he's just getting fed up with so many things. And being put in danger is not really his thing. He's just like, hey, I don't want anything to do with this. And But yet he keeps going. I don't know what you guys think as far as like his motivation versus his ends. I mean, because he's not aware of any of the supernatural stuff that's going on around him with the Emmanuel Senior character, he's got no reason to believe any of this has any connection to the real supernatural until the, maybe the very end of the film, perhaps. But yeah, I don't know as, as a protagonist of this kind of story, there's much there. He's really just defined by his, uh, his greed, but at the very beginning of the film, that establishing scene. And then he just follows the clues and keeps getting bought off uh, instead of leaving the investigation. It, that, it, as, as we kind of touched on, it makes the conclusion a puzzle because it's not as though he has demonstrated the slightest interest in the supernatural or the devil really prior to the end of the film. He's simply doing a job. I wonder if some of this is Johnny Depp's performance as well. In a way, he feels slightly miscast, I think, really, because he's obviously there to, to help the film have that international, you know, particularly American appeal. I think having Johnny Depp in that role, but also I think originally he's supposed to be described as a bit older. He's definitely supposed to be shabby. You know, Johnny Depp's many things, but he, he's not quite shabby. And, you know, that kind of persona doesn't really fit him in a way. And he played it very, very flat and very level, which I don't think Polanski necessarily wanted or thought would happen in a way which sometimes he's sometimes at odds with the how everyone else seems to think they're in <laughs> this really over-the-top theatrical thing or even a comedy johnny depp's quite monotone in a way all the way through and i suppose in some ways it maybe works in the sense that he doesn't have much of a soul i suppose is the point in that he is just an absolute avatar of capitalism in that he all, all he's interested in is the money and that, yeah, Mikey, I don't think he does. I don't think he is necessarily really interested in the idea of the devil being reincarnated. I think he's interested in, in the book collections. I think he's interested in the idea of these three books and figuring out which one's the real book, because I think he's a book nerd, as we said earlier. But I think ultimately he's, he's, he's interested in the money. But I suppose it's strange. I don't think, I don't think the film ever quite gets a handle on this really, because we don't know a lot about him anyway. You know, he's quite, he doesn't have much of a past that we can, we can call on. He doesn't have much of a backstory that we know about. He just exists really. And he's the catalyst. Take us through all of these, these strange people and these, you know, secret societies and ancient, you know, all centuries old books, etc. He's almost quite passive in a way. And, and I, I think. Would have worked better had you had somebody who was completely, by the end, who almost bought into this idea that if I find this this riddle, I'm going to unlock the gates of hell, and actually comes to believe it in the in the way that Vulcan almost seems to think he he will, you know, and he's like, "Come on, Mister Corso, you have to do." It. And he's like, he doesn't he doesn't quite get there. So by by the end, if anything, he just seems a bit baffled by it all. <laughs> he just seems a little bit, what what is what is this all about, really? <laughs> odd it's almost like they couldn't quite get him to that point and whether that comes whether that's the script or the performance i really i really don't know actually it doesn't detract from the enjoyment of the film i think but it doesn't really add up in the sense but i don't really necessarily think the whole ending adds up at all anyway it's still it's it's strange you know so 
You kind of wonder why he even bothers to go to Portugal to track down this final illustration, because if if he he doesn't seem to have any reason to believe that anything supernatural has gone on to begin with, uh, why does he care at this point? I think it's for the quest. I think he has to find that out. The only thing I can think of when it comes to him being motivated to finish the quest and go back to the castle is there's that line when Leanna has all of her devil worshippers together and she talks about how everybody in the room owes their wealth to Satan. And it's supposed to be this whole thing. And they talk about this more in the book as far as like, if you give up your soul to Satan, you are promised 20 years of complete prosperity, wealth, fame, money, power, all this kind of stuff. And even when it came to, and that kind of tied back into the Dumont angle, which was, oh my gosh, you know, Alexander Dumont was a rock star of the, the world back in this time. And everybody loved his stories and he was super popular and wrote all of these great things. And he died penniless because he just spent all of his money like there was no tomorrow. And it was basically he spent all of his money because he knew that the devil would come calling in 20 years and cash his check. And for me, it's like, well, is Corso so motivated by money that he's going to sell his soul at the end just for those 20 years of prosperity because is he that much of a money grubbing person that he needs this? I'm not sure, but it seems like a stretch. Yeah. You have to make that up really, because there's nothing in the film that kind of leads you to that conclusion really, which might have made the film much better if it had gone down this uh, Faustian kind of path. There's an interesting theory I read about this in that Corso Obviously, because he's coming from the States, but he represents a certain American financial and, and cultural dominance at this, at this point in, re- in contrast to a sort of decaying old world Europe, which he, which he ventures into in that everywhere he goes, he's sort of faced with this idea that this, this ancient world that, that America was born out of has faded away. So you've got things like. Vargas is living in this decayed old house in Sintra in Portugal. He's had to sell most of his collection and he's just sitting there with a violin, you know, doing his thing. Yeah. He's like Nero in Rome. The fact that the bookshop with the, the twins is, is old. It feels like it could have been, he could have traveled into the 16th century, 17th century going to that bookshop. It's in this ancient little street in the middle of, it feels like he's in the, in the recesses of, of Spain. When he goes to the Baroness, it's almost like she's an example of faded, wealth in some sense she's living in this apartment in paris she caught she's called the baroness but she's not necessarily sitting on billions of dollars even liana telfer her family had a chateau in france but they're they're penniless she has to marry the guy who kills himself at the beginning to get a fortune to rebuild her castle i think it's really interesting that corso is representing that idea of american capitalism coming into an old world that has a lot more there in terms of history in terms of myth in terms of legend and he's walking into a world that is alien to him so maybe in that sense he does underestimate the power that exists in there and he's only focused on money so i think maybe that is what it what his angle is but it's not really apparent in the script to really sell it to really sell his transformation it sells the plot mechanics and it it makes you understand by the end to some extent what this has been about it turns balkan into a raging sort of Bond villain <laughs> by the end, you know. But how does Corso change? And I'm not cons- I'm not sure he does really. 
I'm surprised that he knows so many languages and that he doesn't come over like the real ugly American and just expect everybody to speak English to him, that he can actually read the Latin, that it can communicate in both French and Spanish, and I think a little German. He's a man of the world, which is very surprising because most of the time, uh, us Americans, we walk into some place and we're just like, all right, who speaks English? Let's get it going. You know, give me some French fries, palm frites, what? I'd love to say most Brits full of, you know, European languages, Mike, but we're, we're much the same <laughs> when we go to Europe, if I'm honest. I guess we came by it honestly. Yeah, he is very passive. He reminds me, so I did watch uh, The Ghost Writer for this one, or The Ghost, I think it was released in Europe as. It's very interesting how there's a, a message hidden inside of a manuscript, you know, the ability to take a manuscript, leave a manuscript, this whole, like, has to stay in this one room, it can't leave any place because the manuscript is dangerous at the end of the day. The manuscript contains the secret. And the Hugh McGregor character... He is more torn as far as, oh, here's all this wealth and power, and I could get into this, but the person who's doing this is this war criminal, which way do I go, kind of thing. And then once he reveals what the secret is of the book, and spoilers for the ghostwriter, that ending is amazing, where he just gets killed off screen, and you see the pages from the manuscript flying through these streets, never to be collected again. Polanski within a matter of 20 years. I can't remember when the ghostwriter comes out, but that he has two movies that are both about mysterious books in his career. That seems very odd to me. And they're also detective stories. This plays with Satanism of Rosemary's Baby, but then you really, it really concentrates more on the detective angle of Chinatown for me. And then there's even a nod, I think, to the tenant in here with the secretary who's obsessed with oranges. The way that she hides that she's eating an orange, and then when he knocks her down in the hallway and we have the oranges falling, I'm just like, oh, I remember almost the exact same shot in the tenant of all these oranges falling down steps. And so, and that one is another detective story, I would say, with Polanski himself trying to figure out this mystery of this apartment across the way kind of thing. And that one goes in a much different way, which is a freaking fantastic movie. I love how these themes come back time and again, that he just seems to be working out a lot of the same stuff. Before we started recording, we were talking about Polanski and just that, Matthew, I think you said that his movies hold together, but sometimes they're on the verge of falling apart. Even his mistakes are interesting, but he does make a lot of mistakes. Let's put it that way. I'm thinking of Pirates specifically. I mean, he's made a lot of movies, and a handful of them, I think, we'd say are among the best of their time. But then, yeah, there's a lot of other ones that, yeah, they're always interesting because he is a master director, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they entirely work. I mean, I was thinking of Frantic when I was watching Ninth Gate as well, because not only because of Emmanuel Senior, but uh, I guess the Paris setting, also all the scenes with the hotel concierge. There's a lot of <laughs> scenes with the concierge in Frantic that are kind of amusing. Though I will say, as I said to you before, Mike, I think uh, Emmanuel Senior is much better in Frantic than she is in this movie, because is there really a character there that she's playing in the Ninth Gate? If she's supposedly. Well, I don't know, the devil's messenger or maybe the devil herself. I don't think it quite works. There's one line, and I even wrote it down because I was just like, this is one of the worst line readings, and I'm trying to remember where it is. But she gives a line reading towards the end of the movie where I'm just like, 
wow, really? That was the best take you could have? Or is it supposed to be this awful? What is it with you? He just murdered someone in public. You're off the hook for the other killings. You should be grateful. I'm ecstatic. You're out of a job, it's over. What more do you want? You know what? There's also some of the lines, they sound like they've been put through Google Translate. Uh, there, there's there's a, a kind of lack of naturalism to some of the lines. She says uses the word seldom at one point where it's like, I don't think anyone would actually say that. Maybe even maybe not even the devil's emissary, you know, just Is there a level of the fact obviously she's married to Polanski, isn't she? And he she's in a lot of his movies. But is there a level of the fact that she's in here because she's the director's wife a little bit? And there might have she might have been a character that could have been very different had she not been the person playing that role, really. I, I do wonder about that. Yeah, I wonder if she was just the cheapest person available for the job. I mean, she plays mysterious very well when it's her and mismatched socks and the duffel coat and all this and, you know, just kind of hanging around the edges. And she's got those beautiful green eyes, which I think they computer enhance quite a few times. And that end shot of her having sex with him. I mean, that reminded me a lot of like the Michael Jackson black or white video, because it feels like she's going through all of these changes on her face, though. It's really tough to tell. Is there an argument, though, that Corso would not have really got to where he ended up by the end of the film had she not magically kept turning up and doing things? Like, she's almost a bit of a... I don't know if deus ex machina is the right word for this, but that that element of the plot almost needs her to show up, save him, give him this piece of information, lead him in this direction. And had that... was that If that wasn't the case... And I don't know if it's the same in the book, Mike. To be, I haven't read the book, admittedly, but I don't know if it's similar, because I know there's a similar character in there because there's more Sherlock Holmes illusions and things like that, I think, is she calls herself Irene Adler and things like that in the book from what I've read about it. But yeah, feels like she's, she's one of those characters that almost, I understand the, the concept of her, especially in terms of the end, but she's almost a cheat. She's a cheat code in a way in that it would have been more interesting in a way had she not existed in that way. And had he been able to piece something together without her popping up every now and then and flying down a staircase or whatever, you know? She is very similar in the book in the way that she shows up and that she does seem to be very supernatural in there. And there is that sex scene at the end on the grass outside of the castle. But I agree with you as far as, you know, we were talking before about how good of a detective is Corso. And she's another person that just kind of hands him things and keeps him out of the way. He even calls her his guardian angel at one point, And then she gives the, if you say so, response <laughs> No. <laughs> I think we needed another draft of this screenplay to kind of clarify some of these uh, problems. You know, one thing that while I was reading a lot of articles about this that nobody really picked up on is that there was a lot of talk about Chinatown. There's a lot of talk about Rosemary's Baby, but there was no mention of Macbeth because Macbeth is another area where Polanski was dealing in the supernatural. I mean, the whole the witches at the beginning of that and witchcraft and all this. And nobody was really saying like, no, this has been in his wheelhouse. I mean, repulsion, obviously to me anyway, is all inside of Deneuve's mind and just the way that she's going crazy, but possibly could make an argument about supernatural stuff. I don't know. But I mean, even from the fearless vampire killers on, Polanski has been dealing with supernatural themes, whether it's more Satan or more supernatural as far as witchcraft and vampires. But this is definitely one thing where he 
tends to inject this into his stories. This movie does, though, to me, feel a little bit like a package that's been put together and seems like a kind of commercial bet. You know, you've got a big star of the, the moment, Polanski doing a movie in that kind of Rosemary's Baby, at least in the sense of, oh, it's the same kind of themes. So it's kind of easy to see how you could get the money together for a movie like this. In a way, it kind of maybe feels like a bit of an easy project in that respect, because, you know, it's ticking certain boxes of, you know, proven career moments for both for, for Polanski particularly. But yeah, it doesn't quite, <laughs> doesn't quite come together for me. It's sort of a mixture, isn't it, of, of a lot of his different, a lot of different films as well. It's like putting them in a blender in a way, <laughs> a lot of his own movies. It's like a, the greatest hits of Polanski in a kind of mega mix, you know. Well, this was kind of a rebound for him, too, because right before this, he was supposed to be making, I think it was The Double with uh, Travolta. And Travolta bailed out right beforehand. And I want to say that he ended up having, I think he might have had to pay for breach of contract because he dropped out so quickly. Didn't they have the sets built and things? They did, didn't they? It was all ready to go, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was like literally the last minute when Travolta's just like, nope, I'm out of here. Bye. I don't know what the motivation was. Actors don't seem to have a problem working with Roman Polanski. I know some people are probably like, oh, I'm, there's no way I'm going near that guy. Because even again, before we started recording, Matthew, you were talking a little bit about how this is kind of a, you know, a canceled actor and director field day here. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Frank Langella getting mixed up on this. So you wonder about Travolta, don't you? Someone like that, whether or not he was he was scared off a little bit by the issues with Polanski, or it was more that he didn't feel like he'd get along with his directorial approach, which apparently, from what I've read, is quite dictatorial in many ways. It's quite can be quite rigid. You know, he's got a vision of what he wants in that way i don't maybe maybe travolta was just in that because i suppose that was 97 i think wasn't it the double or something like that they were going to film it 96 97 so travolta's in that he's in that bounce isn't he? he's in that period where he's about to do face off he's done pulp fiction his career's back ex you know quote unquote and maybe he just got the jitters maybe and then he, he stuck you know he maybe stuck with people who are a little bit more conventionally hollywood you know and I, Maybe, maybe that kind of thing. I know he does like two with John Woo, doesn't he? He does like Broken Arrow and Face Off. But like, so yeah, it does make you wonder. Maybe he's one of those directors that some people fear in a weird way and not for the reasons you might think. I tried watching Carnage while I was doing the research for this. I couldn't do it. I couldn't, couldn't handle Carnage. Four people trapped in a room and it's obviously a stage play. And I'm just like, yeah, I, I couldn't do it. Life's too short. <laughs> I mean, I love three of the four main actors that are in this, and I just was you know, talking about those the delivery from Senye. I mean, when you have stagey dialogue and you don't change it to be in a movie, it just feels like they're projecting to you know the last row type of thing, and it's like ah, I just. Yeah, couldn't do it. But yeah, to your point, Matthew, I really I got a lot of feel of frantic from this as well, and then I want to say. You mentioned the um, the bellboy or the man at the hotel. He was actually like one of the few people that was helping Harrison Ford in that one, correct? Yeah, Harrison Ford has to track him down at the uh, the gym where he's working out. I think it's a pretty interesting element of that film. In fact, the sort of you know the the professional front of that character, and then 
Harrison Ford has to kind of go and track him down in his private life. And it's kind of an interesting element. That was Sonia in there. Was Did he work much with um, Kinski much after a test? Kinski? Yeah. I don't, think, I don't think they ever worked together again okay. that, I, that I know of. Because there are times with, with Sonia where she looks a lot like Natasha Kinski to me. Well, I guess, yeah. There's He has a type, I guess. I, maybe we shouldn't get into this question, though. Again, very Hitchcock, though. Very Hitchcock in that way, isn't it? But I do think she's good in... Emmanuel Senya is good in Frantic. I mean, she was very young at the time, but it, it's a pretty interesting character that she's playing, and uh, she pulls it off really well. Ninth Gate is much less to go with, I guess. The thing that occurred to me in Vodka Killer scored Dracula, Coppola's Dracula. I saw that again recently in the 30th anniversary re-release, and it is a really magnificent score. And is it Polanski worked with him on Death and the Maiden as well, if I recall? Which has a great score, and obviously based on the song. Schubert. But Killer, I mean, it's not the only like veteran of having done a Dracula, which because Frank Langella as well had done a Dracula in the 70s. And I'm wondering, yeah, so all these veterans of Dracula coming to make this supernatural film. No, I think the score up for this is pretty good, a bit repetitive, but something that I realized looking at the film again for the first time in many years is I must have had a copy of the score that I listened to because I I think I'd only seen the film once when it came out, but I knew the score really well. Uh So I must have listened to the score and I'd completely forgotten I was so familiar with it. But I think it's pretty effective, yeah. I think it's beautiful, yeah, the score. You can listen to the score on its own, actually, with the movie on the DVD, actually, and which uses a nice little touch. Although there's there's long tracts where it, there's no so, there's no score at all, so you're just sitting there watching a, a silent movie play out in front of you. I would agree, Matt, in that I don't. I think there are repetitive points. I think there's some beautiful music in there. I don't think it's quite got the sweep of the Dracula score, which is incredible. Um, but it's 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 fantastic. There's some. Fan, I, I think the opening, the opening track actually after Telfer kills himself and it broods its way into the visuals of the ninth, the nine gates with the credits. I think is a fantastic piece of music. I'm sure Polanski said as well that he's never been more excited layering a piece of music over something than that. He said that moment, he's like, this is going to work so well, which which it really does, yeah. Well, it's it's strange in places though, isn't it? Because Corsa gets this really bouncy, this really bouncy score <laughs> to him, this really bouncy character theme, which doesn't fit him at all, really. It would have fitted the Alan Garfield character, I think, more than him, actually. So it, it takes some strange choices, but it's, yeah, it's very, very interesting. And it's way better than so many of the scores you get for these kind of movies, I think. Yeah, my notes, I call it jaunty because it does feel like a, like if he was just like, we're having an adventure kind of thing rather than I'm looking for this book that will raise the devil. <laughs> I was struck too, though, looking at those opening titles. Yeah, I agree with you. The music's great, but the, uh, CGI is pretty, it looks like a kind of not late nineties video game. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> not quite so good. Well, the thing that got me was Polanski talking on the, the commentary track. He's like, Oh, we shot all of these gates and this last one, we were there and it was almost dark and barely registered on film. And I'm like, those are real gates that we're passing. That doesn't <laughs> seem right at all. This, I mean, it reminded me, you talked about doom. It reminded me of the opening credits to, Steven Spielberg's amazing stories, just that like real early CG kind of stuff where it's like, okay, yeah, these pixels might fly apart at any second now. I mean, that feels like the kind of the whole movie though, is it feels like this movie is so tenuous 
And even though it takes Corso a while to get through it, it feels like this movie could just disappear in your hands. You know, just like there's no, everything is so tenuous. The connections, like who's committing the murders, all this stuff. Like we never really find out what is going on. We have our best guesses, but it's like, all right, you know, you just kind of have to have to go with it. You have to follow Corso. I think keeping the camera so close to him. And I want to say that. I don't think there are any shots where it's outside of his realm of knowledge other than the girl flying. But so much of this is we are just following Corso. I think he is in every single scene of this movie. I don't think we are privy to information that he doesn't get other than the girl. Otherwise, it's just us experiencing things through him. And I think that's one way that this movie does hold together is that we are stuck with this Corso throughout everything, and we're not being told a whole lot more than what he's being told. Being on that very singular journey really does help it. I think it's still really entertaining, though. I think there's something quite earnest about this film, and then and then at times almost self-knowingly ridiculous. Makes me really like it. And I <laughs> When Langella comes in and says, boo, and all of the he, Satanists run. <laughs> yeah, that, exactly. That's a great example. <laughs> or just when Lena Olin just goes absolutely mental, like, like you know, and, and she starts screaming at me, goes into him. And it's, just, you know, it's so at odds with so much of these very steady scenes of, you know, Johnny Depp getting into cabs or, you know, going to, going to a library. And it's, a lot of, I think I feel like a lot of people might find this quite dull, but I actually really appreciate the steadiness of the movie and how it doesn't rush, you know, and it, and it does dwell on quite, on what would be considered, you know, nobody would make this film now. Nobody would make this film now at all, I think, or it would be a TV show or something because I really like the fact it doesn't rush and it takes its time to tell what is really a fairly thin story, really. There's not a great amount to it, really. Even the puzzle is one of those things that you're amazed that in 400 years, nobody's figured out. Nobody's noticed the differences on the pages. And then suddenly Corso can see LCF. You know, was that not a big giveaway? <laughs> you know, over 400 years? I think I like it for the fact it's just a little bit ridiculous. And and it doesn't, it, but it just goes with it. It's quite charming in a weird way. So let's go ahead and take a break. And we'll be right back after these brief messages. Coming soon from WeirdingWayMedia.com, a new limited series podcast featuring Mike White from The Projection Booth, Chris Stashu from The Culture Cast, and me, Mark Bagley, from Wake Up Heavy Recollections of Horror. We will be cracking open the seal from the files of Police Squad in color in this 10-episode series starting January 2023. Find it on WeirdingWayMedia.com. We are back and we were talking about the Ninth Gate. And I have to say that this whole idea of noir mixed with Satan is not actually that new. I'm sure, you know, Matthew, I know you teach a film noir class. I don't know if you've ever taught alias Nick Beale, but going all the way back to 
Ray Meland as the devil making this Faustian bargain with Thomas Mitchell was kind of an interesting thing to find out. And then, of course, I mentioned Angel Heart, which came out uh, probably about 15 years before this movie, I want to say. And that was, you know, major landmark of noir meets Satan. The Satan angle in Alias Nick Beale did not seem heavy handed. We get the I'd sell my soul to be able to convict this guy type of line from Thomas Mitchell. But even then, it's not overly done, at least in the beginning part of the movie, that they handled it pretty well. Yeah, I mean, a kind of Faustian pact does kind of form the basis of a lot of film noir. I mean, the idea of whether it's a literal Faustian pact with the devil or whether it's, you know, transgressing and compromising on some core belief. Uh, Yeah, it's it's. It goes well, I think, with Noir. And then, yeah, I kept feeling that we were going to get that same twist from Angel Heart, where it was actually Johnny Depp committing all of these murders the whole time and just not remembering it because of him constantly going to sleep or being knocked out and then waking up in different situations. It feels very similar to what Mickey Rourke was going through, even though I don't think Rourke, Rourke doesn't fall asleep. Rourke doesn't get knocked on the head. This actually gives an excuse for our character not remembering things as opposed to the split of Mickey works personality that he was one person, this Johnny famous, or I can't even remember what it was. The, the horrible name that this missing character has that he's looking for Johnny favorite versus, you know, the actual detective character that he's playing and that they're both one and the same, that he eventually finds out that he is the person that he's looking for. It feels very much like, You know, if Balkan was a figment of his imagination, even the girl could be a figment of his imagination because she there is one point where she's interacting with Lena Olin. And I was like, okay, so she's actually here. But for the most part, I'm like, I don't even know if she's around. I don't know if anybody else sees her because she disappears so readily, like when she's in the library and she's between the books and he goes around the books and she's completely disappeared. And I really like that whole idea of the books themselves being the gates that those are the literal gates that he's going through because we get that at the beginning with the books. And then we get that shot in the library with the books. And then even at Fargus's place where we have the missing book and he's looking through that, it was very nice that we could say that these books are actually the gates themselves. I like that as a as a way of looking at it. It it is a shame in a way that was that sequence with the girl and and Liana because yeah you would have been able to go with that theory I think potentially that she is she is a figment she is just appearing to him she might not even exist you know it is it just is a shame there wasn't a little bit more ambiguity in some senses with some of these ideas in the movie and that it didn't you know I, like you I can't think of another moment where she's necessarily interacting with anybody else but no I. I think it would have been fun to have that ambiguity because I don't think it would have taken anything away from the movie, (laughs) really, having done that. Yeah, even when the mustache man dies, it's all on Corso at that point. And it could just be the girl watching on because and she might not even be there. And then we get that moment in the hotel with the not Gruber, but his assistant when they talk about how his wife, Corso's wife, went up to the room and it's like, I don't have a wife. And he starts talking about, you know, did she look like this? Did she look like that? And it's like, there's the two women. And if one of those women wasn't actually real, I think that would have kind of, yeah, added a little bit more to the film. As it stands, I think it's 
still a pretty darn interesting movie and one that I had a lot of fun doing all this research on. Yeah, I've I've always, like I say, I've always really enjoyed this. It is loads of fun, actually. It's loads of fun, and I I think it's technically well made. I think in many ways. I know I know there are issues with some of the some of the green screen and some of the effects and things like this, but I think some of the the like production design, like we said, cinematography. I think there's there's real thought in it, and I think they managed to they make this look quite distinctive. I think, and I I think it's not a beautiful movie, but I think it's it's a visually very interesting film. And, uh, and he, you know, he's, he seems, he's much more interested, you know, he said in interviews, he's not interested in the myth making behind it. He's not necessarily interested in making it all make sense. He wants to create a, a picture naturally as a filmmaker and draw you in. And I think it does that. I don't think Polanski can be boring as a director. I think he really, you know, he is so interesting in everything he does, even if the script maybe doesn't entirely hang together. So I agree. It's a good fun movie as long as you don't think too hard. On it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's go ahead and we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Ladies and gentlemen, we are privileged to witness one of our foremost scientists at work. However, to assure the complete success of this most intricate experiment, he must have absolute quiet. I repeat, absolute quiet. It shouldn't have done that. Who'd be a scientist? But if at first you don't succeed, try... Try... Try again. Mr. Hoskins, it's worked! I've done it! I've got to see Mr. Burnley! I've done it! I've done it! Stop him! Stop him! What's the trouble? He's mad, that's the trouble. I know what they offered you. You could live the rest of your life on it. Go anywhere, do as you please. And if you want me, I come too. Alec Guinness, the screen's most versatile star, triumphantly augments his gallery of brilliant film portraits as the man in the white suit. Hello. Hello. He saw his great discovery as a force for good. It's more important than anything. It's going to astound the world. They saw in it a danger to his fellow men and branded it a threat to industry. We need control of this discovery. Complete control. If you want twice the amount in that contract, we will pay it. A quarter of a million? To suppress it. Yes. You're an irresponsible young idiot. Father, no. And you're a pompous and ungrateful old ass. Oh. Sydney! No, no, If you think I'd give my invention to you, you must be crazy! I wouldn't give it to you if you were the last man on earth. I wouldn't give it to you if you went down on your bended knees and begged me for it. I won't stay in your house another minute. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at the man in the white suit. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Matthew and AJ. So, Matthew, what is up with you, sir? At the moment, I'm, I'm teaching online film courses. 
I know early in 2023, I'll be teaching a course on World War II cinema. It's kind of a walk through the history of the Second World War via the movies. So that's kind of what I'm up to. And AJ, how about yourself? Yeah, well, I'm uh, I'm all over the all over the internet. Really, you can find uh, my uh, me on Twitter at AJ Black Writer. Well, for now, we'll see what happens with Mister Musk. <laughs> but you know, for now, uh, but, yeah. And my website, culturalconversation.co.uk, is where you'll find all my writings and links to uh, my my book that recently came out, which uh, I was had the pleasure of being on this podcast recently talking about with you, Mike, the uh, cinematic Connery, the films of Sir Sean Connery. And so, if you're interested in some film history about uh, the man himself, please do check it out. It's available everywhere. So yeah, that's kind of where you can find me and what I'm, up, what I'm up to. Well, thank you so much guys for being on the show. Thanks everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on, like the shabby detective, yet another Columbo podcast dreams for sale. The twilight zone, 85 podcast, the life and times of captain Bernie Miller, Reagan on bass. All of those can be found at winningwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Mm-hmm.